Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. School psychologists work to support individual students through various developmental and mental health issues. Given the amount of time children are in school and how school plays a large influence on a child, physically, emotionally, behaviorally, not to mention the personal struggles that surface, such as the home environment or learning disabilities, there is no doubt a school psychologist is of immense value. This is a quote that speaks to me as a parent. You've come to expect the unexpected. On today's episode, we have a very special guest. I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about some very important issues that families face every day. Dr. Gold graduated with a PhD in educational psychology from the University of California in Berkeley in 1978. He has been working as a school psychologist for the Reed Union School District in Tiburon, California for almost 46 years. This means he has worked with many generations of children, Generation X, Y, Millennials, Generation Z, or the I generation, and now the Generation A's. Dr. Gold, it is an immense pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I very much look forward to sharing my experiences and any information with your with you and your audience. Wonderful. And I know the last time I was listening in on one of your talks, which was for the first gra- fourth graders, in the back of my mind, I had all of these questions that I knew I wanted to ask you. And I feel these are all the questions that parents think all the time, and they just need you know, a voice of reason, someone with experience. So let's get into these questions. All right. So you have said this in your talks, and I could not agree more that parenting in this day and age is harder than it has ever been. How have things changed in your opinion over the last four decades with your experience with the school community? That's a very good question, and numbers of people ask me that. I think that the biggest changes I've seen in uh, parenting uh, or in children, actually, is the increase in stress and anxiety that uh, children are experiencing these days. When I started uh, back in the mid-70s, it seemed like it was a much calmer Uh, time for children. The expectations uh, from parents weren't nearly as high, even in a very demanding community like Tiburon. Um, I think I've thought a lot about this, and I don't have data to prove it, but my sense is that life really changed for all of us after 9-11 and 2001. I think the fears that uh, motivate people, um, particularly parents, uh, really have increased since that time. It's it's been challenging to be alive. Um, What's been going on politically, socially, um, has added incredible stress to kids' lives. And I think parents particularly feel like the the options that are available um, are much more limited. So there's a lot more pressure on on kids to perform. Um, another thing that I've seen is how parents and parenting has really changed. Um, the parents that I first um, started working with were people who were at that point older than I was, um, who were raised in much more traditional um, parent uh, parent role models. Um, and what's happened over the years as, is that parents have become both 
more wanting to be friends with their kids. Yes. Um, and much more overprotective and helicopter parents. So um, when I compare to, you know, my parents were born in the, uh, uh, my father was born in 1898 and my mother in 1903. So they were out of the Victorian era. And they were, they had me when they were um, 43 and 48. So they, they were quite protective themselves. Um, but not what I see with, with parents these days who have to know where their kids are all the time. Um, we'll talk about electronics for sure. But there's this almost micromanagement of kids and not letting them uh, learn from experience, make mistakes, um, figure out how to solve problems. I've talked to parents who have kids in college now, you know, former um, students, and they talk about how these kids are um, not equipped to solve the problems. They call their parents all the time. You know, they're, they're in a problem situation. You know, it may not be even a serious problem. They just don't know how to handle, um, you know, life's challenges. And so that's, that's one um, thing that I've seen. Um, in, in the past is how, how parenting has changed. And it's, it's kind of an I, almost ironic um, uh, combination of, you know, wanting to micromanage their kids and also wanting to be friends. You know, par parents uh, um, are almost afraid of alienating their children. Now, I certainly um, don't believe in authoritarian parenting where, you know, I'm your mother and I'm telling you what to do and no questions. I think what I have seen um, over the past four decades is that um, parents and kids can communicate much more, um, what should I say, much more uh, respectfully and much more in, in much more depth. It, it, there is some equality there, and I, I really do appreciate that. That you know, kids feel comfortable talking about their uh, about their issues with parents. Um, but I've often talked in my um, in my grade level talks about um, parents being consultants, and I think that's really important rather than you know managers. So I think parents these days are really juggling with how much do I tell my kids what to do? How much do I continue to manage their life? And how much do I help them as a consultant to solve their own problems? Um, yes. And you made a good point, Dr. Gold. You said the word fear. And I think whenever we live our life by fear or, or our actions, we're going against what we feel maybe is right internally, but we're acting in response to something externally. And I think I'm a parent. So a lot of the things you read online, as you mentioned, the media, the news, I think that's what's happening maybe to this generation of parenting mm -hmm. is maybe you're not trusting your instincts. I mean, so many times I'll even be on parenting forums and I'll read someone's question and I think they know what the answer is, but they don't trust themselves enough to act that way. So they mm -hmm. are opening it up to a community of other people. And of course, with that comes all the opinions and ill-solicited advice. And then I think that creates more fear and doubt. And so the cycle continues. Yes, I, I totally agree. Um, yes, I mean, what we're exposed to, you know, with the media and everything, um, certainly adds to, to that fear. And also, you know, I mean, the parents feel guilty. They want to do the right thing. I totally understand that. That's part of parenting. I mean, love and guilt are sort of the two main feelings yes. that, that parents have. And, you know, they, they're they afraid of making mistakes. And what, unfortunately, what that gets communicated to, uh, that gets communicated to their children. And I deal with so many kids who have put so much pressure on themselves to not make mistakes that um, I really have to work with, with them. I mean, they all know intellectually everybody makes mistakes, but kids these days can be really, really hard on themselves. And again, I don't remember that happening so much back in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
you know, again, it's will they uh, be, if they make a mistake, are they going to not get into a good college and, and that kind of thing. I have kids even as young as fifth and sixth grade worried about where they're going to get into college. Wow. Um, you know, so, uh, and again, it's all part of that sense of um, everything is not available anymore. Um, it, it's a very uh, steep pyramid, if you will, where um, the only the only a few people can reach the the top of the uh, the pyramid. So there's all that pressure um, from parents, and then it gets internalized to themselves um, that they have to be, um, you know, they have to be perfect. Yes. Uh, that's a big word that goes around right perfectionism and i see Mm -hmm. that all the time in children that i work with and i can almost guess that those are the expectations that are had in the home and of course no one can be perfect and to strive to be perfect just leads to a whole host of other issues yes and i think again it's those expectations that people have set for themselves and then therefore project onto their children I know we've all done that. There's so much competition out there. We can get into talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. That's creating all of the stress and anxiety in our children. Right. So and the, the other difference between, you know, the 70s through the 90s or even the early 2000s, um, everybody knows this, it's social media and electronics. Um, you know, it's a whole separate topic, but that in itself, and research has shown this, that it's um, caused increased stress uh, among kids. Um, not just that they're spending so much time with electronics, but that they um, are defining their values, their their values and their own value by um, kids' reactions to um, them. Are they getting enough likes on all the social media? Um, they look at uh, other people's, uh, you know, TikTok and Instagram and, and all of those uh, social media um, <clears throat> uh, devices. And if they don't match, you know, that's where they're getting their standards from. Um, so the, the, the social pressure from from social media, and then there's the academic pressure and the athletic pressure, um, the competition that that you just mentioned, um, that uh, um, really puts incredible amount of pressure on on kids in, in every every aspect of their life. Unfortunately, you know, when a kid says to me, you know, I'll ask them what they like to do when they're not in school, and I'm thrilled when they say, you know, I like to play outside. You know, yes. And but oftentimes was, they don't, I bet. No, they don't. Um, you know, they, oh, I like video games. Well, I, I, you know, try to not put that down, but in, in my mind, it's like, well, I hope you do something else, you know? And when kids, you know, when kids talk about, oh, they like to play and, and uh, with their friends and I'll ask what they do. And, you know, if they, oh, I like to go bike riding or I like to, you know, we just like to talk and, you know, that, that's wonderful. And I, you know, I don't want to be totally negative. Not everybody is, you know, glued to um, their phones or their computers all the time. But I, you know, I, I recognize we're stuck with it. So, so what I try to encourage is balance. And that's where, you know, parents really still need to do their, their management. Um, And this is definitely a hot topic that I would love to cover in more detail, you know, that these whole devices and the digital world, and it's become such a huge problem that there are even campaigns that are out there and people speaking on this topic. And, you know, there are a lot of undercover reportings that are bringing to light how toxic things like that you just mentioned, TikTok and Instagram, Facebook are especially for the younger uh, children. Uh, So let's talk about those. So we know that they are very unsafe and they make kids very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the impact of technology on the current generation of children? I know you touched upon some of them, but I'd like to go into more detail. Sure. Um, 
Well, there are, are several um, different aspects of that. Um, <clears throat> so one is the um, potential for addiction, um, where kids, whether they're boys or girls or in between at this point, um, get either addicted to video games or to communication on uh, on on the on the phone, um, where they can't get get off. I mean, I, I remember a number of years ago at middle school we went up to um, uh, Ashland uh, for like three days to see plays, and 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 this was at least ten or fifteen years ago. And I would watch the kids when they had a break, and there'd be all these seventh and eighth graders sitting in a you know, in a lounge room, and they weren't talking to each other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they were they were on their phones, you know, and they were sitting right next to each other. Um, so, but the addiction really worries me, and I've talked to psychiatrists uh, over the past ten or fifteen years um, who are working with high school kids who can't get off of these things. Mm -hmm. You know, they're you know they they don't eat, they uh, they're on the games all the time, or um, you know, watching YouTube or, or, or whatever it is. And, uh, it's, you know, again, not everybody gets addicted. There are kids who can limit their time and, and that's fine. Um, but how they're, uh, spending all of this time. And there are kids who have um, real social difficulties, you know, kids who might be on the autistic spectrum mm -hmm. um, or don't have, haven't developed social skills and they spend all of their social time um, with, with technology because they're more comfortable with it. Um, and that to me is sad because ultimately in life you have to uh, learn how to talk to people and interact with people face-to-face. -face. Um, although given from COVID and everything else, um, it looks like, you know, more and more people are going to be working from home. Um, you know, that's another whole change in our, in our society. So there's probably excuses. Well, I don't have to interact with anybody. I'll just do it on the computer, you know, and we've all been spending the time on Zoom and, and things like that. So, um, you know, people, you know, technology can be helpful, but on the other hand, um, it, it can be addicting. And I think that when you talk about creativity um, and boredom, you know, there's mm -hmm. evidence that boredom really helps with creativity. And kids these days do not know how to deal with being bored. Um, the answer to their boredom is just go play a game, a video game. Mm -hmm. It's also, um, I think it detracts from learning about delayed gratification. You know, if you don't win a game, you just press the button, you start all over again. Um, you know, and, and kids these days expect that um, with, with technology, whatever they want, they can get. Um, and you know, parents, unfortunately, you know, play into that. They enable that. Um, you know, kids these days think that technology is a right and not a privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's, that's, that's one area is the, is the whole addiction kind of thing. What I see um, and what I work with very much is the um, impact on communication with, uh, between kids. And by that, I mean, um, kids are so used now to texting each other or, you know, posting uh, comments on social media that they really don't know how to um, communicate face to face their feelings. Um, there's so much misunderstanding from what... <clears throat> Um, is communicated via text messages. Um, kids don't realize the impact of their words or even their pictures that they post. Um, kids will say things, you know, will type things that they would never say to a person in front of them. So I work with a lot of kids um, 
just, you know, they, they're hurt because of comments that other kids have made. Um, and we sit down and we really talk about, um, you know, what did you mean? What did you mean to say? What did you mean by that? I mean, communication in general is very difficult. I, yes. I have no idea how people with uh, who don't speak the same language actually communicate. But, you know, we can, each of us interprets a word in a, you know, very differently. And so when I have, and when I'm sitting down with kids and, and, uh, they'll say things like, well, she's mean to me. And I'll say, well, what do you mean by mean? What does she do specifically that, that bothers you? And um, it, it takes a lot of time, actually. It's time I love doing uh, or spending um, just to get kids to really talk about um, what their feelings are, what they are annoyed by the other person, but also give them a chance to compliment another person and say, you know, I do want to be your friend because I like this and that about you. And with technology, you don't get any of that dialogue. Right. That's the problem. You really don't get dialogue. So, so that to me is, um, you know, one of the major negative effects of uh, technology is how it uh, negatively impacts communication. Yes. So addiction and then poor communication are, are two of the main things. And then um, general exposure to, uh, to all kinds of uh, information and, um, you know, that kids are not blocked from. Um, you know, I've talked about how young kids are exposed to pornography and how much uh, problem I have with violent video games. I mean, the fourth graders, I, I haven't heard it so much recently, but um, a couple of years ago when they were all playing Fortnite, and I, I've never played it myself, but I understand it's a, you know, it involves violence. Um, you know, I just have a lot of uh, negative feelings about um, kids being exposed to violence. Frankly, I have negative feelings about adults being exposed to violence. You know, I see ads for movies on TV, everybody being shot up, and I don't go see those things. You know, it's too violent a world. I agree. And I don't, I don't need to add to that. That's my own personal opinion. But, um, you know, ki and kids' uh, dopamine gets all charged up, you know, from looking at these things, whether it's the video games or violence. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, there's that effect on the brain that keeps kids um, engaged in these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And the documentary, The Social Dilemma, I know when that came out, that's something everybody should see. And you realize there are reasons why. I mean, there are so many things against you once you log onto any device that there are these algorithms that are actually manipulating the mm -hmm. way you behave, That's which right. is crazy and scary. And let alone for a child who doesn't have the life experience or the brain development, which we know doesn't happen until about the age of 25. Mm -hmm. I mean, or I can only know, imagine. Later. <laughs> or later. That's right. In many cases later. Yeah. So I can only imagine the thought processes that are happening in their brains. And I really worry about how this generation of children, how their brains are just being rewired. You know, simple things is even just writing pen to pen, pen and pencil to paper mm -hmm. versus the touch screen. Yes. So that, I mean, that is now, I guess, smaller compared to what's happening, as you mentioned, with addiction mm -hmm. and and all and that. I wonder, you know, because now we're getting a generation of parents who actually grew up with all this technology. Yes. You know, so how is that, you know, what are they role modeling for their kids? Um, you know, and, <clears throat> you know, kids always want to be different than their parents. So it's going to be an interesting over the next 10 or 15 years to see how how kids uh, respond, you know, and they're they're certainly very good at technology. Um I mean, when I was growing up, all we had was a telephone, you know, and, uh, you know, and my parents didn't spend hours and hours on the phone. But, you know, these days, if kids see their parents uh, spending hours and hours on the computer, which is, you know, which they may need to do because of work and, you know, communication and Facebook and all that, um, you know, will kids see that as, um, you know, permission to do that? Or will they say, 
um, you know, that's my parents' age. I, I don't want to do that. I want to do something right. different. So, you know, this is an unknown, but it could, you know, because that's how um, every generation is. Every generation, you know, at some point, you know, when they get to be at least teenagers, evaluates what their parents do and decide they, they don't want to do the same thing. So we'll see, you know, how technology um, impacts that. Or, you know, there may be, you know, certain things like cars, you know, I'm sure when cars were invented, um, there was some, uh, you know, resistance to, to using them, but now they're completely embedded in our society, um, you know, for perfectly good reasons. But uh, so I don't know if, if technology will, I'm sure it will last, it, it has to, but how much um, kids will, uh, you know, rely on it completely or, or not, I don't know. I mean, my, my guess is that that's probably not going to change that much, but I hadn't really thought about what I'm just talking about. Um, you know, will they try to resist, you know, when, the, when they see their parents uh, equally addicted, will they try to be different than their parents? I don't know. But it's an I, I hope so. I hope so too. But yes. then who knows what they'll get into? You know, they'll find right. Something. And then the addiction is a very strong thing too to try to undo. Yes, so that yes. will be a whole other challenge. Yes. What I noticed, observed in my own household, and of course in our communities and globally, when the pandemic happened and the stay-at-home orders, is this over reliance on technology. I know a lot of the schools who had the resources provided iPads to children. Uh, I know my own kids, we were almost tech-free tech before the pandemic. We were using it more you know, for, for work and for school, and then it became exciting. And like you mentioned, it, it, it draws you in. In your experience, when the kids started returning to school in person after the stay-at-home orders were lifted, what did you notice in terms of personal struggles at home and the school environment? That's a very, very good question. And uh, overall, I would say that um, kids were very glad to be back. Um, they, during the, the pandemic, you know, when, or during the hybrid learning, when I did meet with kids, um, you know, kids who were, were, were struggling, I, and, and, or maybe not even, um, I would talk to the, I'd ask them, what are you grateful for? Because, you know, trying to put, um, you know, something as challenging in perspective for all of us, I, th I thought was, was important. I, I, I don't know, maybe you read last spring, um, of 2020, I, I was feeling, myself even a little useless because um, the teachers were working really, really hard. Everything was distance learning. I couldn't um, meet with kids. I, I met with kids on Zoom, but I wrote this um, you know, uh, letter. Uh, did you see that perchance? I don't know. Um, but it was kind of my own view of how to deal with you know, something that's very... Um, challenging and unexpected um, and to kind of put it in perspective. And, you know, I know that parents were so worried about their academic, uh, their kids' academic levels. And I said, what's most important is mental health. Yes. And, and um, you know, appreciating what you have, you know, and I would ask kids, you know, what are you grateful for? And everyone would say, I'm grateful I have a home. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters who wow. <laughs> be in normal times they'd fight with. Yes. Um, I'm grateful for my pets. Um, you know, it was really important. And, and, and a lot of the kids actually, um, you know, sort of at least the, that first part of the and the first six months, I mean, they did kind of, and and I won't say enjoy, but they they enjoyed, I think, the intimacy and the family contact that they did have. You know, um, there was enough um, presence of parents and kids that they could really build a relationship. Because if you look at what really goes on, you know, you've got working parents. 
Um, everybody's busy doing their own thing. Kids are at school all day. Um, you know, the, a, I think a very positive side effect of the whole thing was um, that families could really um, be together and enjoy each other. Um, now, I won't say that that happened with every family. Um, I certainly worked with a number of families and kids. Um, the parents were trying to be parents. They were trying to be teachers. They were trying to do their own work, and they were trying to be police people to keep their kids off the, the video games and get them to do work. So for some families, it was torture. Um, and I really felt for, felt for the parents who were trying to do, um, you know, get their, their kids to do what they were supposed to do. And it was really, in a way, it was almost asking, you know, kindergarten through second or third graders to be like they're in college, you know, to expect them to do all this independent learning, um, you know, on their own without, um, supervision. So it was a tremendous burden, I think for parents. Now, some kids um, did it very well. They they were able to do the work that they had to do. They could keep balanced. Some kids actually liked it, you know. Um, but you know, the the larger percentage of kids um, when they came back to school last October, you know, at least part time, and then um, by April they were there most of the time. And this year, without the cohorts. Um, they were real, really pleased because they could, uh, you know, associate with as many friends as they uh, wanted to. So that that was all very positive, uh, you know. I've, now, what what also happened was, in my experience, was that all of the social interactions were on hold for a year, <laughs> and um, so you can imagine that once kids got got back together again they did they pick up where they left off either that and then you know social um negative interactions started occurring again we had to help with that and you know and i think other kids the younger kids who you know second and third graders you know they didn't have the time to um develop those social skills that are um you know developing very rapidly in, uh, in those early years in first, second, and third grade. So they've had to kind of uh, pick up on where they left off and, you know, learn some new uh, new social skills that they might have gradually learned had we been in, in session, um, you know, in, in normal times. But... Um, I also think shifting between different environments were challenging for kids because maybe at home there are different rules, expectations, or lack thereof. And, you know, like you mentioned, busyness or distractions, and then coming back to school, then there are, you know, new sets of rules. There are more extreme rules with social distancing and hand washing mm -hmm. and, and all that. So I think that was really hard for children too, to have to shift gears and now get used to a new environment that they're going to be spending the majority of their time in. Yeah, yeah, no, it's absolutely true. But what I've seen is that kids generally are resilient. Um, it's it, They can adapt to things that we as adults who've lived our life, uh, you know, one particular way, you know, kids actually are pretty resilient. Um, you know, they uh, I've seen at, at uh, both Bel Air and Del Mar, um, I don't know about Reed, but um, the kids are very good at wearing their masks. Yes. Um, you know, um, they were at Del Mar last May when the, the 12-year-olds could start getting um, vaccinations. They they would meet with me and I and say, oh, Dr. Gold, I got my vaccination. You know, very excited about it. Um, you know, so most kids are, are willing to... Um, well, whether they're willing or not, but they're able to adapt. Um, and that's you know, like I was saying um, earlier about parents, kind of helicopter parents micromanaging their kids. You know, kids really, you know, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to run into situations, but they actually have the capacity 
the intellectual capacity and hopefully the emotional capacity to, you know, figure out problems. Um, you know, and I think the COVID is, uh, you know, a perfect example of that, how, how well, you know, many, many kids have adapted to all of this. Um, you know, I did see last spring, there were kids who were pretty anxious about it. I dealt with, um, you know, a number of older kids who kind of realized what could happen, um, you know, to their parents or themselves. And, and, you know, and I had to deal with, um, you know, how, how do we calm down that anxiety? And, you know, all, none of us knew exactly what was going to happen. So, you know, we just have to try to be uh, as safe as we can. Um, you know, that's one of the challenges of parenthood is, um, you know, a big picture is, you know, um, children, you know, and I hate to say this, but, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in life. Um, we, we love our children so much. We don't want anything to happen to them and unexpected things can happen and we can, um, we can lose them, you know? So how do, how do you achieve that sort of, I don't even want to call it a balance, but that recognition that, you know, this kid is on loan to me and I'm going to, you know, do the best I can, but things can, you know, not all kids are, are born the way their parent. In fact, most kids aren't born right. exactly the way their parents want them to be. You know, sometimes parents will have a kid with a significant learning disability or attention deficit or autism or um, poor, uh, you know, low IQ or something and uh, or Down syndrome or, or, or diseases, um, uh, epilepsy or, or allergies or um, cerebral palsy or, you know, all these things that can happen. And, and I guess being flexible, resilient, and grateful are probably, um, you know, three of the main characters, uh, characteristics that I think parents need to cultivate because again, you never know what's going to happen. And our whole society with COVID had to do that. You know, we had to be flexible. We had to, um, you know, be resilient as we, as we can. Um, and And grateful for what we have. Dr. Gold, you took the words right out of my mouth as I was listening to you and thinking, and I've thought about this myself as a parent walking away from the pandemic or looking back and life lessons, those are the three things that I think every child. Now, there are children who very unfortunate circumstances, things that they've endured, not those children I'm referring to, but most kids who, you know, have had a fairly comfortable life and they have the basic needs and a good foundation, but they all walk away from the pandemic with those things that you said, the resilience, the flexibility, and hopefully the gratitude. Yep. I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you. I think it's so important. And I think the kids, you know, depending on what age that they are now will look back and they will also remember that. And I hope, hopefully that will be the positive impact Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. the pandemic. Yeah. And I talk to kids a lot about what I call um, like a history bank. You know, when you're five or six or seven, you, you know, you don't really remember a lot of what you experience, but the older kids get and the older we all get, um, we do have all of those things that we experienced. And when we face, if we can remember those things and that we get through them, um, you know, even if we just survive, you know, and people, uh, you know, kids get through parents' divorces and moving and illnesses and sometimes even parent deaths. I've been dealing with um, kids who, several kids who lost parents in yes. the last year and a half, not to COVID, but to other things. Yes. But um, you go in that history bank and say, um, you know, I I got through this. I can, I got through that. I can 
um, get through this. I, I often, well, I won't say often, but sometimes when I'm facing a challenging um, activity or something or, or something to do, I'll say, well, remember how scared you were when you were doing your PhD orals and you thought that that they were going to figure out finally that you were really stupid and, and you've been faking it for, you know, 29 years or whatever. Um, and, I, and you got through that. You know, so um, I, I'll, I use that on myself, you know, to, you know, um, reduce my, my stress or anxiety about something. Yes. Um, and you mentioned another big topic is this whole topic of grief. And that happened for a lot of people also during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I can only imagine just all of the emotions and, and then there are professionals such as yourself who have had to wear many hats in order to deal with everything that happened? Oh, yes. Um, I have dealt with kids, well, for, for a long time, but this year in particular, you know, kids who've lost their parents and, uh, or a parent and, uh, you know, really encouraging them to express their feelings, um, and then there's some now who are have reached the one year anniversary, and you know I just want to be available um, to these kids to talk about it and to you know validate that that grief is is uh, it's natural, it's normal, and it's important to express it. It's very interesting in the same families I've had, you know, like of uh, the loss of a parent and one sibling. Once I've had where. Uh, and a sister doesn't want to talk about it and a brother does and vice versa. A brother doesn't want to talk about it and a sister does. Um, but, you know, just being there to help, help people, you know, whether it's, and, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, losing pets, um, you know, just to, that happens to, you know, many, many, many kids and, and adults and, and, uh, you know, grief is, um, you can't make it go away. Um, you, you learn to deal with it. My, it was just a couple of weeks ago. My, it was the 25th anniversary of my mother's passing and I had a hard time with it. You know, I mean, it's not like I was every, every year it was, but 25 years, it just sort of hit me. That's a, that's a long time. Um, and to recognize that, uh, you know, grief, will rear its its head and we just have to acknowledge it um you know i think one of those skills that that all people have to learn is you know not to bury feelings but um to recognize them kind of let them pass through us and not get stuck you know that's that's the trick you know how do you how do you recognize anxiety or stress or grief or even anger, but not get stuck on it so it doesn't limit you. And kids have that that's something that kids have a hard time. Yes. Or some kids have yes. a hard time. With. Especially if that's how they've been raised to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I applaud a lot of the school environments or any mentorship where they allow the children to safely and freely share their emotions because they're not always outlets for them to be able to do that. So I appreciate you and and many other staff who have created that safe space mm-hmm. for the kids to be able to, because you said it, I mean, life happens. It's unfortunate, but it does happen. But it's how do we deal with it? Right, right. Um, so let's talk about more things about life. And sure. <laughs> we talked about all this pressure that are on parents to help make their child succeed which you also mentioned puts the children under immense pressure to perform academically, athletically. Hence, you're seeing the stress and anxiety. I know something that resonated with me was this whole college admission scandal. Oh, which, yes. Which highlighted the extreme lengths that parents would go through to lie to get their children into Ivy League schools. I mean, you still hear about it on the news. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on why this is happening? And how can parents and educators avoid this trap of comparison and competition to the point of detriment? Yeah, that's uh, that's a very difficult uh, question and situation. You know, if if we look at our 
highly competitive American culture. I don't know that it's that that this would be necessarily true in other, even Western cultures like like Europe and so on. Um, but you know, this culture. You know, we've got four hundred years of of basically one upping each other, um, and. Uh, I mean, you do find other communities, you know, like the Native American community, I understand, and, and uh, Latinx communities that, that have much more of a sense of cooperation um, with, with each. I mean, these are things that I've read, you know, yes. I, I haven't experienced that, but, um, you know, but in, you know, in, in our, I mean, even in African-American culture, I think there's probably more of a sense of, well, they're very competitive as far as uh, athletics are concerned. Um, But, you know, with white culture, it's, uh, you know, it's highly competitive. And there's this, you know, current sense of if I don't push, 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 my kid's going to be a failure um, or not get, not get what he or she wants. And, uh, but I think there's little recognition that, you know, Ivy League schools are not, you know, everybody doesn't need that. Everybody doesn't have the same interests um, that are purely academic. Um, there, you know, I've asked, you know, people like uh, electricians, you know, what did you like to do in, you know, in school or what, 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 when you were a kid, what did you like to do? And they'd always be things like, you know, building things or pulling things apart and they'd have, you know, but they didn't particularly like school. Um, you know, we, we, school is very, um, kind of single, uh, single minded. I, well, that's not fair. I don't think, but, um, you know, it, it's building, uh, and I, I certainly believe in it. You know, we, we want to build critical thinking skills and basic skills. So, so kids can function in the world, but it doesn't mean that everybody has to be a white collar professional or an academic. Um, you know, I think we, we have to recognize what our kids' passions are. Um, I mean, I'm much less concerned about uh, a kid who might be passionate wants to be a, you know, clothes designer or something like that. Um, you know, we get kids who want to be professional athletes that that's for sure. Um, that rather than, uh, you know, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. If they want to be, that's fine. But I think, um, you know, parents have to recognize that, um, their children have their own interests. And, and regardless if they're, you know, whatever they're passionate about, if they really want to pursue it, they'll get there. And do they need to go to the best colleges, quote, the best colleges, the most famous colleges? No. Um, you know, most kids who, you know, go to college, they in, enjoy themselves. Although now it's, you know, the college, uh, you know, mental health counselors are seeing more and more kids who have anxiety and so on. So, you know, I think what we're seeing in our, uh, you know, younger kids, you know, sticks when they, when they go to college, but how do we avoid that, that competition and comparison? I think it's just supporting kids for, what they want to do. I mean, I think it's important to have reasonably high standards and certainly for kids to have basic reading, writing, and math skills um, so that they can do whatever they want. But um, our, when parents communicate that expectation is uh, that they're going to be no good. I remember a seventh grade kid a number of years ago said to me, you know, Dr. Gold, I think my parents only love me if I get straight A's. That's wow. when we were having A's, B's, and C's. But, um, you know, I I didn't believe that, but the kid did, you know. Um, so it's what, uh, you know, what the parents communicate about, about their own expectations. And again, it's a balancing act, you know. You don't want to have no expectations at all. Um, the kids I worry about the most who aren't, are, are the ones who aren't interested in anything you know, have no passions and hope that they, um, you know, get some sooner or later. Um, but, you know, 
I, I want kids to be happy with their lives. You know, yes. that's, that, you know, that, that sounds so trite and trivial, but, you know, I, I really want people to be happy. I mean, I look at, uh, you know, I mean, I think about my own self and, and how happy I've been with my job and my profession. And then I look at TV ads of people working in factories and I think to myself, how in the heck could, yes. could, could anybody do that? You know, so I certainly understand parents not wanting their kids to end up in, you know, some blue collar work. Um, so yeah, there, and college is important. And look at the percentage of people in the country who don't go to college. It's still quite a lot. So it's, you know, you, you want kids, you, you want parents to um, encourage and, and make um, higher education possible for their kids um, if they want to do that. Um, whether it's starting a junior college or going to a four-year college right away, but putting all the pressure on it has to be the best school. That's, um, you know, whether or the um, so-called best schools, um, you know, that's what doesn't need to happen. And I think parents have to, you know, kind of rein that in. And I've certainly, you know, worked with um, parents and friends who, um, recognize that, you know, my kid's not going to go to Harvard. It's not the most important thing in the world. Um, but they do find a good place for there's plenty of colleges in the country for kids to go to, um, where they can, uh, in, enjoy themselves and get it and still get a good education. Um, yes. And I think there's also more awareness of the different types of professions out there that it's not just the traditional ones that maybe we grew up thinking you got to kind of pick A, B, C, D, or E. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great too. And I think what a lot of us adults have learned is really following your passion because that's what's going to bring you joy in your life. You can do things to people, please. You can do things to perform, but really, is that your passion? Is that what brings you joy? Right. I wonder how many adults really are do something that they really, really love. Yes. You know? um, my guess is a, it's probably not a high, high percentage, you know, that's why I feel so blessed to have my career, you know, um, because there's so much satisfaction out of it. Yes. And I hope we can at least raise a generation of children who, can go through life really feeling excited, getting up every day and going, this is what I'm good at and this is what I want to do and this is mm -hmm. what I want to put out there instead of 30, 40 years going by and then, you know, the feelings of depression and isolation and anxiety yes. and stress. Right, right. So hopefully we're changing the narrative there. But I hope so. it's a journey. It is a journey. Life is definitely a journey. Um, this, I started therapy myself, you know, when I was in my 20s, I still go because there's always um, some issue or issues to deal with that, you know, I, I remember when I turned 30, I thought, well, I guess life is just going to be the same from now on. But uh, -uh you know, mm -hmm. all kinds of things come it's up. It's only starting. Yes. <laughs> it's only starting. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I always say it's especially starting when you become a parent and your kids are mirroring back to you so many things that maybe you ignored or you felt like were fine. And then you really start to start that journey to however you may call it awareness or consciousness. Right. And that's one of the biggest challenges for parents too. You know, parents do, you know, they find each other as adults, young or older adults, and then, um, you know, seem to get along. But then when kids come along, yes. that um, uh, reveals and, and regenerates all of the issues that one had as, as child and as a child and how they were parented. And, uh, you know, sometimes that you, know, you find out that there's lots of conflict there and lots of unresolved issues. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm I'm such a you know proponent of uh, of therapy because you know and, and again it gets back to communication yes. how do we really communicate about these tough issues that maybe our own past 
experiences that haven't been resolved and how do we raise kids um, in a way that matches our values and and some sometimes they're you know or often you know unconscious kind of things you know we we um, you know take in what our how our parents raised us but then if two parents were raised completely differently then um, you know that suddenly becomes quite apparent and you have to figure out how to how to deal with that yes and I think another thing that came from the pandemic was not just therapy is important but how necessary it is and there are people that I know I'm part of that who again may have resisted or felt like you know this is something they can do on their own but then with the pandemic it's like ah now's the time or you have to choose a path, so you might as well choose a path that is going to go in a positive direction. Mm-hmm. So then I know a lot of people that are now seeking therapy or have been in therapy, and I think that's really, really important yes. because it may not have happened otherwise. Right, right. And Dr. Gold, so to we've talked about so many amazing things that I hope parents, caregivers, Anybody who works with children, anyone who is at a point in their life where they feel they need to make changes if they were happy. What are your tips for parents to help boost their child's self-esteem? And we want to, you know, the whole overpraising is where there's a fine line. Right. Um, I think that that's so important um, because I deal with you know, kind of both ends of the spectrum, you know, kids with overinflated egos and then kids that have low self-esteem. And I'm much more concerned about the latter, the ones that um, go through, uh, you know, childhood thinking that they're no good, they're stupid, they can't do anything right, um, even that they're bad. Um, And, you know, the life will take care of many people with overinflated egos unless they're sociopaths, but, um, you know, the, you know, you'll get knocked down and, but if you, you have some basic self-confidence and self-esteem, you can weather those kind of things. But the kids who, um, really, uh, feel easily feel bad about themselves. So the question, how do you boost, um, self-esteem? Um, I think there's, you know, a number of different, uh, ways to do that. I think being, uh, you know, for parents to, um, you know, you don't want to overpraise them or, or have the praise be too, um, general, you know, cause kids, once they get, uh, probably eight or nine or 10, they realize, Oh, you're just my mom. Um, you know, or my dad, you, you have to say that. But I, and I think particularly with kids who um, are exhibiting low self-esteem, that's where we're a team. The teachers um, can really have major effects on, on kids' um, self-esteem um, because they, you know, they do pay attention to their teachers. They want to be um, liked by the teachers. But I think being specific about um, uh, praising, if you really think about what kids um, experience much of the time, it's it's being told either what to do or what they did wrong. And that yes. comes from both teachers and parents. You know, we're always correcting our kids. Um, and it's it's a little bit harder and more challenging to think, what what did my kid do right? What, what little thing can I um, uh, do to praise my kid? You know, I really like the way you helped me um, fold the laundry the other day. That that really um, made my day much easier. I appreciate it. Um, you know, little things that, that kids do. Um, or, you know, I heard you say something, you know, when I was driving you uh, and, you know, Billy home, and you said such a nice thing to him. That was really, that, uh, that you said such a nice compliment about how he um, played so well in the soccer game or something like that. Um, You know, being very specific as opposed to, oh, you're such a wonderful kid. I'm so proud of you. I love you. You know, that's all good stuff. But, and I work with kids on, I talk to them about what I call a self-esteem bank. Um, You know, I've got my history bank and then there's the self-esteem bank where, and, and I ask kids, you know, what, what's a bank? Well, we put money in it. And when you need money, you take it out. And I, um, 
I tell them, you know, so, and I ask, do you know what self-esteem is? Yeah, it's how you feel about yourself. And I give them a little assignment that um, I say every day, I want you to, and I ask them actually, I say, can you tell me three or four things you really like about yourself? And, you know, kids can do that much of the time. Sometimes they really have to think about it. Um, I'll ask them, um, you know, it can be something you're good at, uh, something you like, or, you know, as they get, you know, by eight or nine or 10, I'll say, you know, or, or something about yourself as a person, you know, like, are you funny? Are you nice? Whatever. And they can usually come up with something, but if they can't, then I really get worried about it. But I say, um, you know, a self-esteem bank is where you put those good thoughts about yourself in that bank. And when you need them, you can take them out. And by that, I mean, um, sometimes somebody will call you a jerk and, or something else, you know, on the playground and, and you, your tendency might be to believe them, but you can say to yourself, wait a second, I know that I'm good at this and I know that I'm good at that. And I know that I'm a, a funny guy and I'm a nice person. So you go into that self-esteem bank and you, um, take, uh, take the, those thoughts out that help you not believe, you know, those not nice things that somebody out there might be saying. And I said that also applies to your own inner voices. I talk to kids a lot about internal voices, good voices and bad voices. And the good voices that keep us safe and make us feel good about ourselves and the bad voices that might put us put us in danger and uh, might also make us feel bad about ourselves, like Mr. Perfect or Mr. Worrywart or Miss uh, Can't Do It, or, you know, and I give them names and things like that. And I said, you know, sometimes you'll make a mistake maybe, and you tell yourself, oh, you're so stupid. Um, you're never going to learn this. So we need a better voice, like, buddy. Um, think of something you did today that you're proud of, and it doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be, you know, I, um, my, my friend next sitting next to me dropped her, um, uh, binder and I picked it up for, her. or I, uh, complimented somebody on the playground for a good move in wall ball, or I aced my math test that I didn't think I was going to. It can be, you know, bigger or smaller, but, um, I think we all have to do that because in life we all get confronted with either somebody putting us down or somebody or doing it ourselves where we do make a mistake. And, um, you know, I still try to, you know, when I make mistakes or, you know, I, you know, lose, <laughs> lose my temper or something, not at people, usually just at myself, um, you know, I will have to go back and think, wait a second, you know, you're an okay person, you can deal with this. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense, but I think it's something parents can um, help their kids do. Another little strategy is just, uh, I think I mentioned my talk, is at, at the dinner table, talk about uh, good things that happened that day, you know, your ups and your downs. Um, and, uh, you know, that can, if a child ex experienced something good, that helps with self-esteem. So I think it's a combination of working on it oneself, giving kids the tools and the strategies, however contrived they are, to um, you know say good things about themselves, to recognize good things about themselves, and then for parents to um, explicitly recognize um, you know the good things that that kids do, and you know you don't do it every you know two minutes or anything, but yes. you know, when, when kids do do little or big things that are helpful, kind, respectful, um, show effort are achieving, um, you know, all those things we, we end up feeling good about. Um, it's good to recognize it because we have to balance the, um, the negative stuff that kids do get all the time, you know, the corrections. And, you know, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't do that, but, you know, they can also, you know, correct kids in a, you know, in a kind of kind working together way rather than, you know, belittling them. 
Yes, and I also think to teach your kids those things, parents have to model them. And by modeling means you have to practice it within yourself. Your, yourself, that's right. That's yes, right. which could be a challenge, but it's also very well worth it and necessary. Yeah, because when, when parents make mistakes, how they um, what they say to themselves, you know, and that's that's why having that kind of dinner table conversation, um, you know, your down could be, you know, I made a big mistake at work today. Um, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I didn't. But this is what I did to handle it. Um, I, you know, I talked to the person that I um, said said a mistaken thing to, or I um, spent a little extra time correcting, um, you know, this wording or, you know, or my calculations or whatever it is. And just, you know, to, so kids can see, you're absolutely right to see how parents um, handle their own um, situations that could lead to negative self-esteem, you know, in a positive and constructive way. Yes. And Dr. Gold, I know you've shared so many great resources and tip sheets on previous talks. I would love to take some of those and share it with our listeners on the episode show notes, if you're sure. okay with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and whatever, then, whatever is helpful to your uh, listeners. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your experience and advice with our listeners. Well, you're more than welcome. It was my pleasure. Um, I can babble on and on. You know, so, um, it's only anyway. great information. So Good. we can always well, use I, more I, of it. I think it's it's very you know it's not it, it's it's based on my experience. You know, it, it, is it based on lots of you know psychology studies and so on? I don't know. I mean, I think yes, I'd like to you know uh, cite research when I can, but a lot of this is just my own life experience and you know what I and I think there's there's knowledge from that. You know, I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, I'm not a young guy. I'm 75 years old, believe it or not. And, you know, so I, uh, I've had a lot of life experience, both positives and negatives. And, uh, you know, and, and just a lot of empathy for parents and for kids. And so, um, you know, I, anybody who gets anything out of this, I, you know, I, I, makes me feel very, very happy and pleased. So I, I totally um, thank you for asking me to do this. It, it means a lot to me. It is our pleasure. And if there are any questions or comments that any listeners have, they can direct it to me and then I'm happy to direct to you. Okay. That makes sense. And to the listeners, thank you so much for your time, which is the most valuable thing in the world. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Neoforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.